0: this week's episode of compound your knowledge where we cover three research papers that were posted on our blog at alphaarchitect.com for the week this week uh, we have three papers 1042 qrp how to finance a seller note that was written by Doug Um, yeah super exciting title uh, but uh, we promise it's full of good information Um, the second paper is value momentum and carry across asset classes and then the third paper was rankings and risk taking in the finance industry. Um, so we'll start with the first paper written by Doug, the, the title 1042 QRP, how to finance a seller note. Doug, um, help us out with this post. Yeah. So, so first off, can you explain to us what an ESOP is?
1: Yeah, uh, quite simply, an ESOP is a qualified retirement plan and uh, they're typically set up at companies by the business owners who form them as part of a strategy to both develop employee engagement as well as kind of the early stages of uh, an exit strategy for the business owner. Uh, An ESOP is, uh, or I should say, an Employee Stock Ownership Plan is a ready and willing buyer of a company. And so if you own a companies say in the 10 to $50 million enterprise value range, it's a great way to affect the exit of a company when maybe there aren't bidders or buyers out there.
2: And, and Doug, just following up on that,
1: so in theory it's a uh, way in which the employees can become owners in the company. Right? Absolutely. It, yeah. They don't own directly the stock, they own it through their uh, represented interest in a trust. But what's nice about that is that ESOP companies have some tremendous tax benefits.
2: Mm-hmm. Great.
1: So then, okay, so that's what an ESOP is. Essentially it's, it's a way for owners of
0: business to, to, to sell their company. Um, one thing, yeah, <laughs> it's one thing, yeah. one thing. What, what is a 1042 exchange then?
1: Ah, well, uh, as I mentioned, ESOPs have some wonderful tax benefits to, uh, uh to the companies and the owners who form them and, uh, one of those things, one of those benefits written into the IRS code, section 1042, in fact, enables a business owner who sells his stock to an employee stock ownership plan trust to do so on a tax-deferred basis. In other words, if he elects a 1042 sale, he won't pay capital gains taxes on the sale proceeds until such time as he sells that rollover or that exchange, which maybe never. He could die within his estate. Okay.
2: Yeah, and so just following up on that, uh, basically, to do that exchange, that person needs to purchase what are known as 1042 qualified properties. Correct? Right.
1: Qualified replacement property is a term of IRS art, and what it refers to is uh, the rollover property that you purchase with the proceeds from the sale of the stock, much like a 1031 exchange is the purchase of a new property after selling the old property with the proceeds. Perfect.
2: So, yeah, just because, you know, some of our – this is, you know, more of a tax uh, discussion here, but also an investment discussion. So now, real quick, Doug, you, uh, an interesting side note is the fact that when a lot of times if, an, if a primary owner or a lot of the owners sell their company and their shares to an ESOP, yep. right, they may not always receive 100% of the amount of the sale up front. So Can you kind of discuss that, exactly what happens there?
1: Yeah. Uh, Briefly, when a business owner sells his company to an ESOP, he relies upon the company's ability to generate uh, borrowings from third-party sources, banks typically, to uh, walk away with cash from the sale. And sometimes there's not enough cash on the transaction. Typically, it's 50% or so. And so a business owner will typically take back a seller note very competitive rates they offer mezzanine financing rates in the kind of the 11 12 13 range but the point is that when you have to purchase your rollover property with the sale proceeds and you don't have all cash you have to finance the purchase of qrp qualified replacement property with what you've got and there are a couple of ways to do that we talk about in the article
2: Yeah, and so just so we're all on the same page here, let's do a quick example. Yeah. Right, because I think putting numbers would make sense. So pretend I'm an owner and I sell my shares of the company uh, for $10 million, and I receive what? What would I receive? Yeah,
1: you'll typically receive between $4 and $6 million in cash because the Mm -hmm. company was able to borrow from a bank. And then the company will offer you, or the trustee and your negotiations will offer you, Seller paper, effectively a promissory note that entitles you to uh, an interest rate return somewhere in the area of, as I say, mezzanine financing, which is pretty attractive. Most business owners opt to take that instead of giving that return to a third party who might step in.
2: Yeah, but so the interesting thing is if you sell it for 10 but only receive 4, you need to buy 10 mil of property, correct? That's right. You've got to okay. do it within a year. And, and so in today's post, you talk about there's two ways in which people normally finance these transactions, correct? Right. Yes. So what's the first way that's typically been done and what are its pros and cons?
1: The, the first way is a floating rate note strategy that was popularized in the late 80s by um, by a large private equity transaction that kind of kicked it off. and uh, While I won't go into too much detail here, I'll I'll just suggest to you that it's been essentially the default strategy for qualified replacement property for the last 30 years or so. It is, um, by many uh, perspectives, uh, a a less attractive way to invest long-term capital, and you have to go through a very costly monetization strategy that results in having to borrow against the collateral value of the floating rate notes that you purchase as qualified replacement property. And so you walk around with about a 1% negative carry hanging from your neck, and that's a really hard hurdle to have to overcome in your investment strategy to say nothing of the very low yields uh, that you would otherwise have if you just held the qualified replacement property itself. Yeah. So floating
2: rate notes have been used in the past yeah, as yeah. one
1: option. And so then the, you know you,
2: you highlight a potential second option right. that people could use. and. What is that and what are its pros and cons?
1: Well, one can divorce the financeability of the qualified replacement property from the asset that is the qualified replacement property. In other words, get away from having to have an investment-grade bond with a stable value. And, and that this newer strategy enables one to more appropriately invest the proceeds for many investors more appropriately, in an asset designed for the long-term investment period that your typical business owner is seeking to hold his qualified replacement property for. I mean, these can be 30, even 40-year holding periods. And one would like to imagine getting a growth asset type return from that strategy, potentially.
0: All right, Doug. Yeah. That sounds good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Compound Your Knowledge podcast. So the second paper we're going to cover this week is called Value momentum and carry across asset classes. I I love the start of this post Um, So Nicholas provides data that there's a 72% probability of San Francisco The San Francisco area getting hit with a major earthquake uh, Between now and the year 2043 he relays that into the idea that there's basically a hundred percent chance of the stock market being hit with a financial earthquake between now and 2043. So he wants to talk about how factor investing, particularly momentum, uh, value, and carry uh, can help protect against this potential financial earthquake. Um, Jack, we, we spend a lot of time here talking about value and momentum, aka buying what's cheap and buying what's
2: strong, um, but what's the carry factor? So carry just high level as you can think of it as buying like higher yielding investments, and shorting lower yielding investments. Gotcha. High level because you know it varies intra asset class So Because yep. in this post uh, Nick looks he looks at like stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. Yep. So it's obviously going to not be the exact same definition, but generally carry you can think of as just like high yield, buy high yield, short low yield. Right. And so- and just going back to Nick's intro on that. Right, because he talks about if there's like a financial crisis or anything. You know, I think one thing uh, he may be trying to get at there is just the fact that these factors, specific to this post, are we're looking at long short portfolios, right? Whereby you're not actually taking because he actually does like long short but with beta adjusted, so it's like a beta of zero portfolio. Mm -hmm. Which, what that would mean is, even if there's a financial crisis, in theory. If you have a beta of zero you actually have zero net exposure to the markets right right, right. Yep. so yep. so specific to this we're going to look at and this post looks at long short factor portfolios yep. okay
0: um and then and then so he went through and he, and he broke down the value factor momentum factor and carry factor how did he go about breaking down those three sections
2: yeah so what he did was he he did um within each of the three factors value momentum carry he did it first by like asset class, right? And so he did that by stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies, yep. right? And so on stocks, he did it, I believe, like in each uh, in each country, long short, and then you know he then market cap weighted across across all them. And so he he creates these long short factors or four portfolios: stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, and then he does an aggregate value one, momentum one, and carry one. Yeah, and I, I think it was in
0: value over the last 10 years, commodities was the only thing that outperformed the market.
2: Well, again, so he doesn't compare it necessarily to the market, because these are like, in theory, like zero beta or had, a positive, had return. a positive return. Yeah, so, yeah. so what he finds is, what do you notice? In value, right, we notice like this negative return. Yeah. In momentum, he actually finds momentum, uh, momentum in bonds did really well, right? Yeah. But he then, so then he, at the very end of the post, combines these three multi-asset class, multi-factor portfolios. So he's got, you know, value combined across the four asset classes, momentum combined across the four, carry across the four. Yeah. Then he combines those three into one portfolio. Yeah. So, and actually had a positive return. Yeah. Um, but. Um, so he did find that it still did have a net positive return that combined long short portfolio over this last ten year period. Gotcha.
0: And so, so what? What's the summary here? What's the big takeaway? Yeah.
2: So what he did find was, you know, it did have a positive return. Yeah. However, over this ten year period, like what did it do? What did it add to a portfolio? Mm-hmm. And so he just looked at, hey, simple. You know, he says risk reward. I believe he means sharp. Uh, sharp ratio. So the S&P over that time period, as we all know, had an insane sharp, Mm -hmm. right? I think he has 0.9. The historical is 0.35. So three times the normal historical. So we don't know if that's going to happen in the next 10 years. But so what happens is if you take, you know, 0.9 sharp on S&P, if you just add 40% bonds, typical Mm 60-40, you get to like 1.1. And then if you add all this crazy multi-factor long-short portfolio, it actually really didn't add too much from a sharp risk-adjusted perspective. Right. So it just highlights over the past 10 years, it didn't really add too much to a portfolio. Yeah. But you know, if there happens to be an equity pullback or you know, maybe the Sharpe ratio goes back to normal historical mean yeah. for oh. S&P, you know, that's when this portfolio would probably add more to a overall portfolio context,
0: and and he talked about it in the paper too. Why he only went back ten years and things like that. Mm-hmm. So so there's there's more information in the paper. You can dive into the details a little further. Um, the the third paper we looked at this week uh, was rankings and risk taking in the finance industry. Um, this article this post studies the impact of rankings on professionals' risk taking investment decisions. Someone once said that. Uh, most of economics can be summarized in four words. People respond to incentives. Um, Jack, what was the setup on this post?
2: Yeah, so this is kind of like uh, an experimental thing. Um, They did some experiments both on professionals and both on students. Mm. Um, And the whole idea actually was to kind of look at the effect that uh, rankings have on people, right? So if you're... You know, working in a group context yep. and all of a sudden, you know, you know what your rank is. How does that affect what you actually do? Yeah. And then, uh, so, so then what, what did it end up showing? I, I mean, it ended up sure. showing that rankings kind of matter, right? right. So essentially, you know, one, one neat finding is, you know, if you can see your ranking and understand what it is, and you, you realize that you're like underperforming relative to other people, you become like riskier. You start taking more risk options, right? So that was an interesting finding uh, that was in the paper. Yeah, and and, and part of the finding was,
0: was that based around people care about the relevant like relevant rankings.
2: I yeah, think. relative
0: to who they're with. Right, um, and then just another interesting point: are there are there gender differences in the uh,
2: behaviors? So within the professional setting, they didn't find any significant differences right. okay. amongst males and females. Yeah. So. so right. Okay. Yeah.
0: So so yeah, I mean, continue to confirm incentives matter, relative performance matters, or relative uh, rankings, um, and that's what we got for this week. So nice. tune in, tune in next week, and thanks.
3: The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC. All rights reserved.